you're listening to Death of the Reader, and this week we continue our delve into interactive fiction, mystery, and more with Lucas Pope's Return of the Obra Dinn on your Murder Mystery World Tour. A.K.A. The Ghost Ship! Yes. Ah. This tells the story of a boat in the 1800s that- Ship. Uh, Come on, it's a ship. If it, it's okay, in the it's ocean, a ship. it's a it's ship. A sh- she's a ship. Disappeared Yar. off the British coast on a journey around the southern tip of Africa, only to show up some years later with mm-hmm. only a few bodies on deck yep. and a story to behold. Mm-hmm. Your character, an unnamed protagonist, is reached out to by a character who was on that ship at the time. Who knows who it could be? No name is provided. That's right. With a it out. with a uh, stopwatch with a skull on it. Yep. and a journal of the things that happened on board. Yeah. And it is your duty to use that stopwatch to travel back in time to frozen moments and revisit the fate of the Obra Dinn. Yeah, to be entirely clear, this journal has, it has a list of all the characters on the ship and a couple pictures which depicts all the characters, but it doesn't match them together. It doesn't say, you know, this character is this character, and, like, this is their, this is who they are and how they were killed. you got to figure all that out yourself using a supernatural stopwatch. That's because right. Because, of course, you do. And you, of course, in the truest fashion of mystery fiction, very reminiscent of our much-famed The Three Taps by Father Ronald Knox, uh-huh. are an insurance assessor. Yes. Here to determine what the payout for this boat should be. Now, this week on the show, we are discussing the whole game. So there are spoilers for what happens for everything except the true ending of the game. The bargain chapter Uh, of the book. But we explicitly have not gotten the right answer, or rather Herds, who is in the hot seat this week, has not gotten the right answer. And we're going to talk all about everything that goes on in the game. So effectively Mm -hmm. full spoilers, but Herds doesn't know all of the answers as we go into this. Not yet. I I know, you know, a good idea of what happened on the boat. Uh, a lot of my predictions, as we'll say it out the gate, a lot of my predictions for like the tropes that appear in the story were very much on points, uh, very early on. Like, it, let me put it this way. You, you begin the game, you're on the boat, everything seems hunky-dory, and then you get shot in the face in, in the past. It's great. Because Lucas Pope, uh, you know, they made a game called Papers, Please, which is another game about bureaucracy and like making that interesting and engaging. Uh, but that game was very, like, slow and, well, this game hits you right out the gate. Uh, the second you go to examine your first murder corpse, uh, you get thrust into what I can only describe as a diorama. And this happens with every body that you examine on the ship. You don't actually get to examine all 60 of the crewmates that were on passengers and such that were on the ship. But every time you examine a body, uh, Lucas Pope takes your, your character and shunts them into the moment that that character died. And... This is the the most fantastic thing about this game is the sheer scope and spectacle uh, that Lucas Pope is able to kind of create uh, with such a such a low budget. You know, being an independent developer. Yeah. Um. One that that moment at the start where you get shunted in your first flashback and you see the captain of the ship uh, actually pointing a gun at your face, firing it, and you realize that the corpse that you're you know examining is the body behind you, the guy behind you that's getting shot. Um. And really the the joy of this game kind of going through it me for the first time is getting to see that first moment, that incredibly specific moment that Lucas Pope shows you, that first shot, and then getting to explore the uh, the action of the scene 
at your own pace. Yeah, the really fun thing about this game is that you have the story told to you entirely through static imagery. The, yeah. the only motion is you being able to walk around uh, as a camera in the scene effectively. Yep. But the story is still told through sound design and vocal performances that happen before you were shown the freeze frame. And these moments of anticipation where you hear this beautifully delivered uh, voiceover performance and this very selectively chosen sound design and you're wondering like, oh, what is that sound? That sounds weird and unusual and I, I don't know like what what is that from I don't recognize that thing on a boat and then you cut to the actual moment and you're suddenly blown away by as you say that spectacle it is a mastery of single shot composition in a medium that usually doesn't rely on single shot composition it, exactly it 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 blew me away just because you know I'm into game design I love the 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 kind of process that goes into making these sorts of experiences uh, the amount of like the the impact that these the story has and that these scenes these dioramas have um, based on no motion actually occurring no animation uh, playing other than your character you know pulling out the stopwatch and it like spins a bit um, yeah I mean one of our favorite moments I think as we were going through it was because um, you got this kind of question in the back of your mind you got this weird supernatural stopwatch and the journal and. You're asked to figure out what happened on this ship and everything apart from the watch seems pretty normal. But the second that you examine the captain's daughter and you're shown first off the shot of her getting cracked over the head with some ringing from the ship. You're like, wow, what made the, the ring fall? I wonder what could have. And you turn your head in any a- direction, <laughs> in any direction. direction. And there are tentacles. There are giant Kraken tentacles pulling crewmates off the ship and flipping boats over and waves everywhere. And it's it, it flips the switch from are there supernatural elements in this story to yes, there are. In fact, this entire story is, is incredibly supernatural, relies on a lot of tropes like pirate treasure and curses and things and like it it's a slow burn where you think maybe they can they, they wouldn't go full crazy on us they wouldn't go full crazy trope with a kraken and spider creatures and voodoo curses yeah and then it just hits you it just hits you right in the face with it and i love that yeah I, the thing that i mentioned while we were playing through the game and if you've missed it we have been live streaming these uh, yeah. interactive stories that we've been playing through and um, there's links on our social pages at flex and herds to get to the youtube page that we use to stream this check it out um and one of the really fun things uh, that I pointed out is that so much of the supernatural uh, storytelling we have around the sea comes from the void of knowledge, the things we didn't know, the empty spaces on the map that an artist painted in with a sea monster because there's yeah. some terror out there that's unknown. And obviously that's not the whole origin story to a lot of them. And there's a lot of other mythology that goes into it. Yeah. But I really like the way that we have that contrast between the true stories of ships out of Cornwall and Falmouth in England, which we'll talk about next week on the show, and the stories that kind of inspired it, as well as you mentioned, the expectations of people going out facing unknown horrors, as well as this supernatural element that then fleshed out both of those other true things that were actually happening. Yeah, I feel like the game does a really good job of making you instantly aware of the fact that these monsters are dangerous because you cut in on the moment of someone dying to them. Mm. Like you understand what the monsters are and kind of get an idea of what they're therefore and how they operate and how they fight as well through these little snapshots um but also making them feel incredibly foreign like they don't fit on this ship because you have some chapters like soldiers of the sea which is a full-on battle against these spider creatures but then you have like 
the illness chapter, which is just, there's an illness on the ship. We got to deal with it. People are dying to this illness. How do we stop it? Or the murder chapter, which is, again, there aren't really any supernatural you know elements at play, at least on the surface, but it's just, you know, a guy gets killed and someone has to take the fall. Very clear, like social situation. One thing that's actually really interesting about that is you mentioned that we start in the chapter called The End, where the captain is basically mutinied by his crew Mm -hmm. and, well, what's left of his crew. Yeah, totally. Uh, And one of the interesting things is that we have that very mundane chapter, then we go immediately into a very supernatural chapter, and then we keep jumping back and forth between them. And there's something, I think, very authentic to the experience of the seas of that unknown I keep mentioning in terms of that Sometimes you face challenges you completely understand and other times you absolutely do not. And by jumping with such aggression between the two of them, it really shows you the harrowing experience that the people on the ship had out in the open seas. And even if you were to accept that all of the supernatural stuff is metaphor for other things, if it didn't actually happen, Mm. it still speaks to (laughs) that nature of of fighting things you don't understand and being up against a challenge that you cannot surmount. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the aspects of the of the design that really intrigued me is how when you play through the end chapter, which is actually the first chapter you get, so it's confusing, but <laughs> you, you play that, that chapter from beginning to end. You play through the, the moment that the mutineers break through the captain's door yeah. and then play it forwards as he fights them off and eventually commits suicide. And yeah. that's you know, the end of the ship. That's the last living soul in the ship passing on. But then when you got to the, the doomed chapter, which is where the Kraken shows up or the soldiers of the sea or other chapters, for the most part, you end up at the end of the chapter. Yeah. I think we'll talk a little bit more about the mechanization of that because there's obviously more to- <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot to unpack. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack there in the next part of the show, but uh, I hope you get, get the chance to play this game. Uh, so good. Because one of the fun things about it is even though we've obviously you know spoiled a couple of the surprises here, because it is a piece of interactive fiction, there's still a lot to do beyond what just I mean, actually happens. We've barely even talked about the actual goal yeah. of trying to identify everyone and the process of doing that. And we're definitely going to talk about that on, this, on the, you know, the later part of the show. But in my opinion, look, go, go play this game. It's yeah. fantastic. Alrighty, well, stick around. You're listening to Death of the Reader here on 2SER 107.3. We are discussing Lucas Pope's The Obered Inn on your Murder Mystery World Tour. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you, and we are talking Lucas Pope's Return of the Obra Din. I'm joined in studio by B. Michael Radburn, author of The Crossing, which is currently in film production as Dark Sky Island. His latest novel, The Reach, is Taylor Bridges' third outing out from Pantera Press here in Australia. Baz, it's great to have you here. Welcome to Death of the Reader. Yeah, it's great to be here finally. I'm a big fan. It's good to have you. And I've also dragged in Sean Britton, one of our regular co-conspirators here on the show, because (laughs) one of the things we wanted to talk a bit about today is uh, your own ventures into horror and, you know, the Snafu series that Sean's mm. a big fan of, and I figured he'd be the, the perfect backseat driver to bring on while Herds is cornered away in a closet somewhere, locked and keyed so he can't escape. Always <laughs> uh, always a pleasure, Felix. <laughs> All righty. So, Baz, crime and mystery fiction has an extensive history in suggesting that our toughest questions can be explained only by the supernatural, a tradition mm. which you wonderfully exploit in the reach. In an increasingly secular society, why is crime fiction's search for the truth the perfect battleground to explore our relationship with the unknowable. Crime by its nature is is a puzzle. And so the greatest puzzles are those that you can't explain. And the most unexplainable are those within supernatural elements. So it's sort of, you can join it by three dots. 
um, there, I think. And, and it, as you know, it's, um, gosh, it's been about 200 years of writers doing the same thing for a long time from Poe and sh- shy that. Um, so uh, it's not a quantum leap between the two by, by all means. Um, horror is one way of exploring fears probably from a safer distance than, than crime because in crime we have to take our place to, uh, ourselves to some fairly dark places um, and then deal with that as well. So, yeah, it, it, I, I think I feel more comfortable probably writing uh, horror and supernatural because it is a safe place, whereas when you start to dip down into what you need to know, what you would like to happen in your crime stories, and, and as you know, the, the Reach is probably the, the darkest in the Bridges series I've, I've gone, and for as long as my publisher doesn't pull on the leash, I'll probably go a little bit darker on the next one. So, <laughs> It's funny, isn't it? Horror as a safe space. It's a, it's almost a complete turnaround, but, you know, I can completely understand what you're saying there. It's a really an, an area where you can control it and it's kind of safe for yourself uh, rather than the reader. Yes, that's right. It's behind a kind of a facade too, I think, because, um, you know, you look – the one the one I always go back to is, is um, when you look at it as, say, uh, Godzilla – you go back to the fifties, which was only like look to the, to the Western public. They 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 watched that in their um, in the drive-ins and uh, theaters and neck with their girlfriends and boyfriends and and uh, it was just a, a you know a giant dinosaur stomping <laughs> on a city. But to the Japanese that made it, I mean that dinosaur's shadow was a mushroom cloud, and uh, it mm. uh, in one fell swoop it could destroy a city. It uh, breathed uh, radioactivity. I mean, that was a true horror that, that that generation that was still probably watching that movie just 10 years after the bombs dropped was was quite phenomenal. So that's what I mean by it's a safe place. You, you can look at it from – you can put a mask on it and just almost disguise it as a true fear but, mm. but from a distance. But, but back in uh, – I was fortunate enough to – Meet Stephen King back in the mm. – we were both working in Canada at the time anyway. It was about 84 and we were both working at the um, World um, Fantasy Convention at the time. Anyway, he, he told me he, that, that less is more and, when, and his way of ex- explaining that was you could have a body on a slab and you can take your reader in there by the hand and you can – the reader knows that that body did not die well and you can turn the lights on and you can rip – the, the sheet away and you can explain every terrible thing. But there's some readers there that think, eh, it's not so bad. Mm. Or you can take your reader in there by the hand, keep the lights low, just take the readers gently by that hand and just place it under the shroud for them mm. and let them do the work on how terrible that body might be. That's something I've sort of never forgotten from 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 uh, Stephen King, even though I remember that. We, we spoke more about sports than <laughs> uh, – it's, it's ironic, isn't it? There was a room full of wonderful writers and that's – yeah. He's a, big ba- he's a big baseball fan after all. He was too. Yeah. And music's another thing that links a lot mm. of writers, I find. we all, A lot of us play some form of musical instrument. Mm. And I've, anyway. I've seen you have a photo of yourself up with a banjo on yes, the website you play. I do. <laughs> <laughs> Often but not well. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I can relate to that feeling. I know. It's a, it really makes me an outsider by that. But I do play other stuff as well. But I, I do. The, the banjo's good, but I, I need more practice these days. Let yeah. me touch on a, on a slightly more practical question mm. when it comes to writing horror then, uh, and especially horror in this kind of crossover with crime that mm. you've got uh, in the series. 
you've got a real balancing act between the threat of monsters and and the kind of uh, horror that they represent and the threat of the kind of human villains Mm. of a piece which involves more and more crime telling. How do you kind of balance the two of those? I find a lot of stories kind of come out with uh, humans are the real monsters Mm. and and the monsters end up being paper tigers, but then sometimes... The monsters are so horrific that the the villains, the human villains, don't matter so much. So no, that's right. I mean, how how often do we hear a, a description of a, a particularly a serial killer or something like that? Uh, the the a, a true monster. I do tiptoe on the edge, and I do like doing that. But it's it's you will notice that it, with my crime novels that I don't cross the line. I'll tiptoe on it, and I'll 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 put the what ifs. The hoodoo. I mean, I just pull that out of my um, back pocket for for the. Um, I just like the sound of it for the for the reach, and and it, it was nothing. It was just a legend of the the hoodoo. Don't get caught by the hoodoo uh, out in the woods um, that the um, the loggers carried around with them, and it was just a nice little backstory. But it kept playing in there. Is is this a monster? Is the serial killer uh, the, in this town? Or is it the hoodoo? Yeah, I thought uh, one of the other symbols that you employed through the reach, and maybe this is, an, again, another moment of me reading it a, a bit too far, was <laughs> all of these ideas of the thresholds that we cross. I can think, you know, when we step out of the light from the boat wreck in the very opening of the novel, mm. when we first walk through the uh, the entrance of Heaven's Gate, there's a particular moment where they observe that they've crossed a threshold. There's something both entirely ordinary and simultaneously spiritual about the idea of these invisible lines we cross every day, which I think really nicely ties into the theme of the supernatural of the novel. Is it ever possible to know if these ledges lead to doom or salvation or does Taylor just have to take those steps? It's a part of the journey. I think he feels he has to take those and sometimes, again, he probably wouldn't have given it as much thought as you did. <laughs> but, but you're right. No, that is something I do. With dwellings and, and borders, I like to put that in all of my books and stories because and they can be metaphors, particularly with buildings. I love the building to reflect the character. Uh, I think the best example I've got is in The Crossing where if you have a look at all of the characters' dwellings, you'll see that they reflect them perfectly. Yeah, I think one thing that I definitely noticed in that front that I kind of alluded to there is that those uh, thresholds are often defined by light. I feel when we step into Heaven's Gate, we immediately get told how the light in the building is different to outside and how kind of almost with this heavenly glow compared to the the inclement weather outside. Yeah, that, that's that, that's something of I think we we as readers have changed in the last hundred years too. Mm. I think I remember um, Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea and about page five or six where Nemo is just looking out the window at the different <laughs> fish that goes past. You know, but but we are changing all the time. But I, I I think that's important. I think that plays a part in in the whole feeling of the the situation and the scene. Yeah. I think it's also just such a strong part of the identity of particularly Australian crime. You know, at uh, the Terror Australis Book Love Tuesdays that we first got to speak at uh, about a week ago, Mm. you asked a question to the audience about, you know, the settings and places that inspire you. And, you know, this is set in the Hawkesbury, not too far out of Sydney here. And when I think of so many of the great rural Australian crime novels, it's all about the feeling of the place and something that really I think is not unique to Australian crime, but the way we do it stands out in amongst the field of the world at the moment. Yeah, yeah. And don't these places do leave leave a little something with you, don't they, when you, when you leave? And um, 
They don't speak to everyone, but um, all of those locations, the crossings, Eldritch Falls, Devlin's Reach, they're all things I've picked up along along the way from different locations sort of thing. And I've been carrying these things around for decades. I don't write them down, but I just tend to pick them up as I go. And then my books, my locations, they're, they're never an epiphany. They're, they're always just a collection of things that I will eventually have enough to make the cake with. And mm. yeah, it just seems to work well for, for me that way. At least with the fictitious places, you don't have to remember, oh, this is where the post office was, this is where the pub is, nobody can pull you up on those and ones. It, exactly. And it could be down to laziness too, because <laughs> I mean, if you are looking for the perfect location for your, for your, um, for your book, then uh, there lies madness. So it's, it is <laughs> nice to just narrow it down and then find that's the spot I want it between those two towns on that river. I'll call it this. Well, all right, Baz. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Death of the Reader. We'll have links up on the podcast to the reach if you're interested in getting yourself a copy. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, I, I noticed LJ Owen's name on the cover there, and I can yeah. say that these, having read them, I think they're a good pair of companion texts to The Great Divide in this. So uh, yeah. if, if you were intrigued by that when we covered it earlier this year, perhaps uh, this is the next step in your voyage into rural crime here in Australia. So thank you once again so much for coming on, Baz. Uh, absolute pleasure. Thanks, guys. And thanks, Sean, for uh, joining us once again. Always, always a pleasure. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing Lucas Pope's The Return of the Oprah Din, and we will be back with more of that in just a second. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your Murder Mystery World Tour, discussing Lucas Pope's Return of the Oprah Din. It is time for the part of the show where we normally discuss the mystery, the elements, and our <laughs> solutions for it. But because this is a piece of interactive fiction, and because this is a piece of interactive fiction where it immediately lets you know what's going on, mm. this has to take a very different shape today. Unlike when we were talking about The Last Express, where we could actually kind of talk about the narrative and the mystery that went into it. I think here, there kind of is no mystery. It's more about the attention you pay and the details you tell. Yeah. It's kind of interesting that every single scene is somebody getting killed, whether by an actual murder, you know, in the chapter, the murder, or by combat in the in the end chapter, or accident, or whatever the situation is. There's always someone being killed, and you, by the game, are asked, so, first off, who is this person? Uh, second off... How did they die? And third off, who killed them? But of course, if you don't know who the person is that killed them, you don't you don't know. You can't figure yeah. it out. You can't solve it all. Yeah. So what we were talking about at the end of the first segment of the show today was how you start at the end of the story and progress yeah. forwards and then go to the Doom chapter and progress backwards. And then it starts to jump around a bit more. But the thing that's really interesting that I wanted to raise to kind of start off this part of the discussion is sure. that because we begin at the end and mm. go forwards through the end, the story explicitly gives you the most simple example of the game's mechanics right out front, which is just, you know, yeah. basic game design. Mm -hmm. So it's, I can compliment it on how well it does it, but it's not a mind blowing thing. No, um, it's just well put together. Right? Very well, <laughs> very well. Uh, but it's really nice how it gives you the least bewildering, most straightforward, least supernatural, smallest cast scene mm -hmm. in the game yes. to go through, oh, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. You know what I will spotlight, though? It's not just that it's it's well put together. It's that it makes sense in terms of the story. I think that that's the thing that I, I want to kind of spotlight here, yeah. that the reason why there are so few characters in the last chapter is because everybody has already died. So uh, Pope is able to create scenes with less characters that he could put, you know, earlier on in your in your game experience yeah. 
because so many characters have already passed on. You learn about them later on. You have like there's one scene where you get to see the execution of a, a man wrongly convicted of murder, and that is a huge crowd scene, but it occurs maybe halfway through the game, right? Now, one of the things that's really interesting uh, is this concept in game design. I, I suppose it's just a thing in design in general, but the yeah. vertical slice sure. of gameplay where you basically take a piece of every aspect of the game mm-hmm. and put it in one place, and that is your feature set. Sometimes it's the demo, sometimes it's say, the tutorial, you, sometimes you, it's the introduction. Usually that's used in trailers. That's, yeah. that's the most common time that it's used, but yeah. yeah. But for games specifically, and this example in the Obra Dinn, the mm-hmm. end is a great example of a vertical slice in that it shows you exactly what you have to do in that it gives you a series of characters. It's easy to figure out who at least three of them are. Once you know who three of them are, how they died and who killed them, it will then change it from a uh, handwritten note to a printed note in the journal so you know you got it correct. So by the end of that tutorial, if you are paying even a modicum of attention, you will understand all all but one of the core mechanics of the game. Uh And then when you jump into the Doom next, you get the final mechanic you've missed, which is where it will start hunting for bodies that are no longer on the ship. But the way the game works uh, mechanically is that when you're shunted into these these diorama scenes, uh, the game waits for like a minute, a minute and a half, I want to say. Yeah. And then it will like iris out and say, you're done looking at the scene now. But it, it's not actually saying that, but that was how I interpret it in the moment. Um, and you're like, there's like this heart, like this beating sound and your hands start shaking. And you're, what's going on? Why is it making these sounds? And suddenly my character would start to, uh, you know, show me other bodies and, and move me on from the scene. And it was because I was just tapping the space bar. I wasn't, in my mind, I wasn't pressing it, but that's what was causing the game to kind of move forward. In retrospect, especially after, you know, going through the whole the whole thing, yeah. I don't like the fact that the game forces you to sit for a minute and a half before you can input information. Yeah. I don't like that, uh, especially with replaying the game in mind, um, but also because some scenes are just so simple. You go, all right, I've learned what I can, and now I have to sit around and wait. It, it's just, it's a bit confusing. Yeah, it's it, like the it one is thing. a bit weird because on the one hand, I understand it in that it's a game that you could very easily get lost in and black yeah. hole yourself into a problem you have created on sure. your own. Sure. And it's trying to move you away from doing that. Yeah. But on the other hand, if you have enough of a hand on things or too little of a hand on things, it can be yeah. really inconvenient for the game to move you on when you're not ready. Yeah, I- I absolutely got like pushed along by that mechanic, by the the timer of like how long I'm supposed to be in the scene, and then of like show me where the other, other bodies are and move you on to the next scene. But admittedly, but- this is only the first time you enter a scene by actually scanning a body, and then you can revisit it without yes. it kicking you out. Yes, you can go so back. It, it's not entirely unresolved in the game's mechanics, nah. but it is definitely the oddity I hear and see people complain about the most. Um, and I guess Herds, this is where I wanted to jump over and talk a little bit about Papers, Please, because sure, that's always. something that you are much more an expert. Yeah, dude. Than I am. I beat it. It was and, great. <laughs> and how Lucas Pope has used kind of very similar tools of simple problem solving, narrative design, sure. and moving the player forwards uh, in his previous game, Papers Please, that yeah. have kind of bled into this game with mechanics like that. Sure. I mean, both games are very heavily focused on on bureaucracy and in matching pieces of information. In Papers, Please, the entire game is that you're like a border guard and you're checking people's papers to see whether they can come into your country. Yeah. And so basically what you do is you look at their papers, you see if the face matches the person in the booth, see if the information that they've got matches all the other passports, and you shepherd them on. 
But of course, uh, both games kind of escalate. And the pressure um, in Papers, Please is yes. that you have to keep your family un- alive by making enough of a commission of how many it, people you get through. Yep. So as the number of things you need to check increases, the difficulty to keep your family fed, sheltered, and yes. medicated uh, just goes up and up and yeah. up and up. I, I'm honestly more, more interested in talking about the differences between the two games and the similarities because- you know, he created this very intense micromanagey. You're focused on keeping everyone alive and earning enough money every day. And there's like morality decisions on like. Whereas here, there is just absolutely no morality. Oberdin is more clinical despite also being about paperwork. Yes. Which is the most interesting thing. And there is no time restraint either. Um, when you get to the end of the story, uh, it, it starts to rain. And the character who's like the, the boatman who's like taking you to the ship says, Hey, it's time to go now. But there you can is, just stay there as long as you, you want. You can just sit there and like fill out paperwork forever. And I think it's kind of bizarre that that Pope has made two completely different sort of experiences with such like similar ideas with similar at their fundamentals with very similar mechanics. Um, I think it's really cool, honestly. The one thing that does carry over though, which I really enjoy, is the different endings you can get. Um, papers, please. You can get a lot of different endings. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, th- this game has all sorts of fantastic endings, and we got the worst ending yeah. in Oberdin, which is only my, three. My absolute favorite one. You find out which character gave you the diary at the end, which I, I won't spoil, even though it's a very minor detail. Yeah. But the note that you get if you identify too few of the crew is it says his dying breath was committed to saying that he was disappointed he entrusted yeah. such an important task to you. It's so good. It's, <laughs> it's so amazing. It's so great. Like the endings, there's only three of them. There's a bad ending, a good ending, and yeah. like the you get everything ending. But yeah, the, the character who sends you on the trip just curses you. Although apparently there is like a, an achievement called the captain did it. I don't know if this produces a different ending, but if you want to, you can fill out every death as saying that the captain killed them and you get like a little, little achievement for it. Like you did it. You you got the captain did it. I'm going to have to have stern words with whoever gave you that piece of information because that was going to be something I was going to save for next week. Oh, <laughs> oh I'm sorry. Well, well you know, we know now, unfortunately. That's all good. That's all good. It's all about honesty and sharing what we know here on Death of the Reader. But anyway, we will be back with more of the return of the Oberdin next week on the show. We will be going through to the end of the game once again, this time putting in all of the answers and covering the bargain chapter, the last unfilled piece of the journal. Yeah. So uh, make sure you stick around. Join us for that if you want to watch the stream of us playing through it. We will have it linked up alongside this podcast. And uh, I suppose we will see you next time here on your Murder Mystery World Tour.